0: Good morning
1: everyone.
0: Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and what is the 19th Annual Dartmouth Conference on Liver, Pancreas, and Biliary Disease. Thank you for joining us and uh, the Medical Grand Rounds this morning is the first part of our annual conference. I wanted to begin by uh, just telling you a little bit about Bob Simms because this lecture is a memorial lecture for Bob. He was a member of our Dartmouth-Hitchcock faculty for over 40 years, and he trained many of those in GI and hepatology. And he had a very profound influence on the practice of medicine uh, in our institution. He passed away in June of 2013 after a long illness with a myelodysplastic disorder and leukemia, and we, uh, we miss him greatly still. He was born in Newark, New Jersey. He went to pharmacy school before he became a physician, and that served him incredibly well. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of medications, and he educated all of us uh, in the practice of medicine, especially around pharmaceuticals. He went to Seton Hall College of Medicine and Dentistry, now the New Jersey College of Medicine, part of Rutgers, and he graduated from there in 65. When he graduated, he married a nurse he had met, Sheila Maine. Uh, They married a couple weeks after his graduation in 1965, and they moved to Boston, where he worked with Franz Engelfinger, who had a profound influence on his study of medicine. Uh, He did his uh, internship and residency there, spending two years in Boston, but then going off to Columbus, Ohio, where he was a captain in the U.S. Air Force. He often joked about the fact that they would occasionally have him act as a psychiatrist in his role there, and... Um, he, he that, that wasn't exactly one of his most impressive skill sets, and he, he, but he did what he needed to do for our government and uh, acted as an internist and whatever other clinical things he needed to do. And then he came back here. He came, well he came here, he came to Mary Hitchcock to finish his senior resident year and he became our first GI fellow in 1970. We've had scores and scores of fellows since then, but he actually was the inaugural fellow he went in 1971 and 72 for an impressive year studying with Gerald Klatskin, who at the time was a giant in hepatology uh, it, at Yale, teaching him about liver biopsy interpretation. And Bob came back to Dartmouth, and he started really the hepatology division of our GI and hepatology division. He joined at that time three other of our luminaries, Maury Kelly, Jack McCleary, and Tom Almy who had been here as uh, our early gastroenterologist. He also learned colonoscopy from Shinya, who had brought colonoscopy to the United States around 1970. That's when colonoscopy actually started. And he brought, Bob, learned it and brought it to this institution. And much of the registry type work that we, we continue to do now at our VA and our initial colon cancer screening programs here all started with Bob starting around 1972 or three, when he had gone to New York City to work with this Japanese clinician who brought colonoscopy to America. Family time was very important to Bob and his family. He had three sons uh, and he really loved his colleagues and the people here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and uh, spending time with people in a social way. He especially loved fly fishing and being out in the outdoors. He loved being a teacher at every level, students, medical students, residents, fellows. He was really delighted to be at our MM MM&I conferences, where he was an avid discussant of every case. It didn't matter if it was a GI case, he was a consummate internist, and he wanted his opinion known in every time uh, (laughs) that we presented a case. Um, He taught clinicianship. His knowledge was encyclopedic. He taught by example on how to be good, caring doctors, and his patients really did love him. In December of 2013, he was awarded the Department of Medicine's Chair Award, given to a faculty member demonstrating extraordinary engagement in the multiple missions of patient care and academics. And it is in his honor that we dedicate today's lecture, and we are completely delighted that Dr. Kamath is with us here to present that lecture. So let me just tell you for a moment about our presenter today. Dr. Kamath is a professor of medicine, consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and a master's faculty privilege holder in clinical and translational science at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. He began his studies at Bangalore University in India, receiving his medical degree and doing his initial house officer and fellowship training at the most competitive and impressive institutions in New Delhi. He became a member of the faculty rising to professor and head of of GI at St. John's Medical College at Bangalore University. And he began getting much more interested in the disease of alcohol-related diseases in India, the common cause as it is worldwide of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. That brought him to pursuing research and clinical fellowships at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. His major research area has been identifying patients at risk for mortality in cirrhosis and other liver diseases. And he played a key role in developing the model for end stage liver disease, our so-called MELD score, which, as you know, is used worldwide as a prognostic score for liver disease and used in the allocation of organs for liver transplant. His research spans all of hepatology. Acute on Chronic Liver Disease, Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, Polycystic Liver Disease, the Bud Chiari Syndrome, even interest in hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasias, and alcoholic hepatitis, cirrhosis, all the complications thereof of portal hypertension and variceal bleeding and and encephalopathy, all of that leading to over 200 peer-reviewed publications in his career so far. He's a gifted educator. He's gotten over 10 Educator of the Year awards from the Mayo Clinic School of Graduate Medical Education, four within his division of hepatology and GI, and he's had over two decades of teaching. In 2003, he was named the Henry J. Plummer Distinguished Physician in the Department of Medicine. In 2015, he received the Distinguished Educator Award from the American Gastroenterologic Association, In 2016, he got a Lifetime Teaching Award for Excellence from the Department of Medicine at Mayo. And most recently, he received the Distinguished Clinician Educator Mentor Award from the American Association of the Study of Liver Disease, our very uh, impressive liver association in America. Dr. Kamath has reported no potential conflicts of interest. And I would like you to join me in welcoming him to the podium to give our Bob Simms Memorial Lecture.
1: So much for that kind introduction, and thank you for inviting me here uh, and giving me the honor of delivering this lecture, like bob i have an interest in education, and as mentors, nothing gives us greater joy than to see those whom we 've mentored grow and outperform us so mary carrie i 'm really proud that i 've been involved in a small way in your training and uh, Liam, are you here? You're supposed to be here. (laughs) Okay. So in in this talk, I have no disclosures. I want to acknowledge some of the slides that I've taken from my fellows and colleagues. And in this talk, which is very basic and is aimed for the primary care physician, I'll try and answer three questions. Most important of all is when you see a patient, the question is, does my patient have cirrhosis? The second is, once you've diagnosed cirrhosis, what is the prognosis of this patient? I like to have that discussion very early on with with the patient and the family, and then the particular complications the patient might have, and how do you manage these complications. Now cirrhosis is typically, or classically, a histological diagnosis. (laughs) But now we know that we don't have to have a biopsy to make a diagnosis of cirrhosis. We seldom use a biopsy to make that diagnosis. So here is the normal liver. Cirrhosis comes from a Greek term which is skiros. Skiros is not scarred. Skiros is tawny. Tawny is the color of this desk because the liver color changes from that to some uh, woody looking color, and so that was how the term cirrhosis came up. So the diagnosis of cirrhosis can be made classically on histology, but now we know we can do various things short of a biopsy to make a diagnosis of cirrhosis, and I'll go over those steps in more detail. And this is really very important in diagnosing cirrhosis. It's overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed too. So when do we normally do a biopsy in a patient with liver disease? If you don't know what's happening, that's a good indication for a liver biopsy. You can determine the degree. Inflammation cannot be determined well on any other test. So if you're looking for inflammation, a biopsy is good. You can use a biopsy to determine fibrosis. That's classical. You can do a biopsy to determine whether the fibrosis has progressed. Or you can do a biopsy in a patient who is known to have chronic liver disease and you think something else happens. So this is typically patients who may be overweight, female overweight, liver tests elevated, and then suddenly you find that the liver tests are even higher than before. Immune markers may be positive, so you're not quite sure. Is this autoimmune hepatitis or is this NAFL with a positive ANA? In these patients, it's really important to do a biopsy because you don't want to commit someone to lifelong immunosuppression just based on tests. Nowadays, fibrosis assessment and progression of fibrosis, we don't need a biopsy. And let's go over some of the ways we try and assess that. You have non-invasive testing serological tests. When you look at the labs, just take a quick look at it. Mentally, you can make some calculations which we'll go over to determine whether there's fibrosis or not. And so for the primary care person, if you look at liver tests elevated, quick mental calculation, or you can go online, no fibrosis, you can continue to manage that patient. If you have fibrosis, at least get an opinion from a specialist. So there are serological tests, there are imaging tests, And there's elastography. So let's go over each of these in details. So the OPRI, which is uh, AST platelet ratio index. So as you have fibrosis, platelets go down, the AST goes up. So here's a calculation. So AST has gone up, and if the platelets go down, then the number goes up. So let's say if your AST is twice the upper limit of normal, that is 100, so that's 200. But if your platelets are 400,000, that's 0.5. This is very good to rule out fibrosis. It's not that good to rule in cirrhosis. So quick mental calculation, you can do that. A little more accurate than this score is the FIB score. FIB is fibrosis. Four indicates you have age, that's one, AST2, ALT3, and platelets. It is a little, gives you a little finer discrimination than the APRI. So here, less than 0.45 cirrhosis is unlikely. These tests are very good to rule out cirrhosis. Not that good to rule in cirrhosis. So as a primary care physician, if you see these two numbers, which is an APRI less than one, FIP4 less than 1.45, don't worry. This patient does not have bad liver disease. You can continue to manage the patient. Mental calculation is difficult. My fellows tell me they got into medicine because they could not calculate. So if you have difficulty in calculations, go online, and you can have these calculations done. Or you can have imaging tests for hepatic fibrosis. Now, what you have to understand is that fibrosis has no molecular signature. You cannot look at an image and say, okay, there I see fibrosis. You have only indirect evidence. So if you see the liver's nodular, you say, yeah, there's some fibrosis in there. But we use stiffness as a surrogate for fibrosis. There are problems with stiffness because a congested liver is also stiff. So that's not cirrhosis. An infiltrated liver. Is stiff again. That's not fibrosis, but in general, if we roll out everything else, stiffness equals fibrosis. So let's look at simple imaging. What we look for to diagnose cirrhosis: a nodular liver on ultrasound, and splenomegaly, which I'll show you a little more clearly in this CT scan. So three features will tell you cirrhosis: a nodular liver. Collaterals, you can see all the collaterals there, so those are varices and splenomegaly. So if you have this, your diagnosis is clear. Or you can use elastography, which I told you measures stiffness within the liver. We assume the stiffer the liver, there's more fibrosis. And we have two generally-based tests. There's MRI-based tests. This is the most accurate, and I'll show you some pictures but it's expensive and not everyone has it. Elastography is the most widely used. A scan. there are different elastography tests using transient elastography, but we'll go over the one that is just most commonly used. It is operator dependent. So we generally say you have to do at least a hundred before you get good at it. Not very good when someone is very obese and there's no image orientation. For instance, the MRI will tell you where there is scarring. I'll show you pictures again later. But elastrography doesn't tell you particularly where there is scarring. And here's the difference. Uh, scan gives you elastrography one centimeter wide, four centimeters deep. So you get four cubic centimeters or four milliliters. So this is about 100 times a liver biopsy. So a fibroscan scan one centimeter by four centimeters. Elastography, 250 milliliters. So it gives you uh, an idea of at least one quarter of the liver, so it's just much more than just a fibrous scan. Don't worry about these numbers. These numbers are changing. As of last week, the decision was made that it was going to be eight. So anything less than eight don't worry about fibrosis. So again, as a primary care person, if you see the number eight or less, don't worry. More than eight, ask someone to see this patient. And then there's elastography, was developed by one of my colleagues in radiology, Dick Eamon. So essentially, there's a boombox. And the boombox has a paddle over the liver, and that sends vibrations through the liver. So that is the boombox is the active driver and the paddle is the passive driver. And that sends sound waves going through the liver. 60 hertz for 32 seconds. And then you come out with an elastogram. And it's very easy to read. Violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, red. Okay. The normal liver, violet, indigo, blue. So you can see here that's fat so you can see the violet and indigo color yellow orange red that's a stiff liver so just look at the scan and you know that's not a normal liver so here's how we interpret elastography less than 2.9 don't worry no fibrosis 3.4 to 4.9 we don't biopsy, we say there's probably fibrosis. For some studies, you might require a biopsy, but generally you do not. If it's greater than five, low no suspicion for cirrhosis. I told you this suddenly comes up. You find out the patient has cardiac failure, an infiltrative problem. If your suspicion for cirrhosis was low and the liver is stiff, I think you'd need to do a biopsy then. But if your suspicion was high, The elastography shows it's greater than 5. You really don't need a biopsy. So let's look at this patient here. Here's a patient, hepatitis C. You can see the patient is obese. The question is, does the patient have advanced fibrosis? On MRI, what's called the opposed phase, Fat shows up as black. So you can see these fat planes change from here to here showing up as black. So this liver is not fatty. Patient is obese, has hepatitis C. So here's the elastogram. Anyone wants to guess? Cirrhosis or no cirrhosis? You can even pick a number here. You can see it's all just yellow. and, And so you can see stage four fibrosis. And the score is six, which is over five. So let's summarize liver stiffness measurements. You have different techniques. You have a FibroScan. scan that's greater than 13, 12.5 will tell you it's cirrhosis. The higher it is, the more your risk of complications. So over 21 is associated with portal hypertension. This is another technique which I've not gotten into in details, but this is coming up in the U.S., and that number is 2.6. And then there's elastography greater than five. I think the biggest problem with these stresses, unless you're in this field, these numbers don't quite make sense to you. Because that is kilopascals, that is kilopascals, yet on MR you're saying it's five. On transient elastography you're saying it's 30. So there's now a move to try and get everything on one scale, just so that no matter what technique you use, you get a number which says, this is cirrhosis, this is normal. Right now, you have to know a little more about the technique to know what the right number is. So here is my workup for a patient. So if I have a patient in front of me, I know the patient has chronic liver disease and then has a variceal bleed, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy. I'm clear the diagnosis is cirrhosis. I don't need imaging. I don't need elastography. I do not need a biopsy. No complications, but on my examination, I find the left lobe being enlarged. I find splenomegaly. I find stigmata. Uh, spider nevi have come up, and especially if the lab shows thrombocytopenia, impaired hepatic synthetic function. That's good enough for me. This patient has cirrhosis. If I'm still not quite sure. I look at the imaging, a nodular liver, collaterals like I showed you, splenomegaly, that is cirrhosis, still not quite sure. We'll do an elastogram or a fibrous scan. If that shows you cirrhosis, the answer is yes. In a small percentage of patients, you still need to do a liver biopsy. That's when major decisions are being made. And this for us typically is a patient with longstanding cardiac disease, congenital heart disease, Patient needs to go for surgery. You say, sure, go ahead for surgery. But then the image says abnormal liver. Radiologist will say cirrhosis. Cardiac surgeon panics. Cardiac surgeon says, I need a biopsy. I tell them, you don't need a biopsy, but they say, yes, we do need a biopsy, and surgeons always win, so then we'll do a biopsy. (laughs) But it's not really that often that you need to do a biopsy nowadays, okay? So is that clear to you? This is how, so you have a patient in front of you, now you've made a diagnosis of cirrhosis. The next is, how do you determine prognosis? I like the discussion very early on, so I set expectations for the patient and the family. They should know exactly what the future is going to be like because they have to take some responsibility for their course of disease. So that means we have to know what is the natural history of cirrhosis. So patients with chronic liver disease will get scarring, or some of them will. That's called compensated cirrhosis. And if you have jaundice, ascites, variceal bleeding, or hepatic encephalopathy, that is termed decompensated cirrhosis. And now we know there's yet another stage. In any of these three situations, you can get precipitating events, typically it's alcohol, viruses, or drugs. That can worsen the liver disease and give rise to hepatic and extrahepatic organ failure. And we now call that acute on chronic liver failure. And there are again different subtypes, which we don't need to worry about. But remember if you have cirrhosis, and you have an insult on top of them that, a big insult, the liver's going to fail, and the course is very rapid. <coughs> so we have to avoid that. So now you've got a patient in front of you. First question is compensated or decompensated. So let's look at this. Let's see a show of hand. If you have compensated cirrhosis, what is the most common cause of death in these patients? They have compensated disease. Baricel bleed, anyone? Apicella carcinoma? Hepatic encephalopathy, cardiovascular, good. So it's cardiovascular. So remember this, compensated cirrhosis, worry a little less about the liver. Make sure you're taking care of other things. So cardiovascular disease and malignancy kills patients with cirrhosis, normal liver. Having said that, most patients with compensated cirrhosis or two-thirds will decompensate, and then they will die of liver disease. But in the compensated stage, they're not dying of liver disease. So what, how do you determine prognosis and compensated cirrhosis? The median survival is nine to 12 years, so you've got plenty of time in these patients, time for them to try and reverse the course. Most deaths are not liver-related, it's cardiovascular malignancy. How do you determine they're decompensating? So that, how do you know you're going to have to watch this patient a little more carefully? So <clears throat> portal pressure, which is not done routinely, you can use a MELCH score, or you can use the albumin. So when I see a patient, everything looks stable. I say, come back in a year. Follow up with your primary care person. But when I see the mel score going up, albumin dropping, I'm going to keep a closer watch on them. I may ask them to come back in six months, or I may ask them to come back in three months. The prognosis in decompensated cirrhosis is different. Median survival, two years. I let them know right at the beginning. This is your median survival. Long-term is not, prognosis is not good we need to consider liver transplantation if possible. They will die of complications of liver disease, and therefore you have to consider liver transplantation. And they also get sepsis. Remember I talked to you about the acute and chronic liver failure? Sepsis is a major cause of that. So, also based on the complications, I like to give patients some idea about prognosis, because when you say median survival is two years, it's not the same for all complications. It depends. So compensated cirrhosis, nine to 12 years. Now, when they decompensate, your median survival has dropped. So after two years, if you have any of these complications. (laughs) But if they get hypoxemic, that survival is down to 10 months. If they've got spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, the median survival, we're talking about medians here, it's down to nine months. This is old terminology, hepatrenal syndrome. There's a new terminology, which we'll go over a little later. If you've got refractorositis requiring more than three paracenteses a month, that person's median survival is down to six months. And if over two weeks the creatinine has increased to greater than 2.5, the median survival is down to six weeks. So again, it's important determine that. And I, I tell my fellows, my fellows know this, when they've got type 1 hepatorenal sin, syndrome, median survival less than six weeks, this is not the time to update mammograms, colonoscopy, enough, okay? This is the prognosis. Don't have the patient spend a lot of time in hospital. We're talking about end stage here if they're not candidates for transplant. So how do you determine survival? Can you do a little better than that? Can you give them some idea in terms of months? So that's where we come to the MELS score. So this was created. It's a mathematical model, but you can go online to create this. It looks at three-month mortality. You can look at one-month and two-year mortality, but three months is what we generally look at. <clears throat> three objective parameters, bilirubin, creatinine, and prothrombin time. This is a formula. I don't want you to remember it, but this is what I want you to look at. So the creatinine is multiplied by 0.95, the INR by 1.12. So INR influences the model more than creatinine, and INR and creatinine influence the model more than bilirubin, okay? And here's a look at that. If your INR is 1, bilirubin 1, and creatinine one, your MEL score is six. Now if the INR has gone to three, MEL score is 19. Bilirubin has gone to three, MEL score is only up to 11. Creatinine is three, MEL score 17. So INR influences it the most, next the creatinine, next the bilirubin. And if all three are three, the score is 33. So what do these numbers mean? Again nice to have this discussion up front with the patient. This is 22, 15% chance of dying in three months. It's 29, it's 30%, it's 33, it's 50%. And essentially patients with a score of 40 or over are not going to survive three months without a transplantation. So again, have this discussion early with the patient. So we've diagnosed cirrhosis, we've determined prognosis, we've had a discussion with the patient, and now we're talking about specific complications. So the management of compensated cirrhosis. Remember, they're not going to die of liver disease. So your goal here is to prevent progression of liver disease. You want to prevent hepatic decompensation. So how will you do that? Weight loss. Irrespective of the cause of cirrhosis, overweight patients do worse than those who are not overweight. Make them lose weight. Exercise regularly, build some muscle because debilitated patients, patients with sarcopenia do worse. So some resistance exercises, weight loss. Avoid alcohol. Try and, tre- <clears throat> try and treat the specific etiology because treating the etiology will prevent decompensation. Get the immunizations up to date. Surveillance for varices and surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma. Surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma, ultrasound every six months. alpha fetoprotein protein may be used. You don't have to use it. It may be used, and that's if you're a little concerned about the ultrasound and the weight of the patient. It's probably most cost-effective if the expected survival is greater than five years, and if they don't have, you know, if they've got bad cardiovascular disease, probably don't. You can have the discussion at least with the patients because patients uh, don't quite like it. They're close to dying from cardiac disease, but then a scan is done and it shows a mass in the liver and they say you missed the mass. Not that you could have done anything about it. So have the discussion with the patient about whether you want surveillance, what is the utility of surveillance, will your management change if we know you have a tumor or not. But the most cost effective is if their survival is greater than five years. If you've treated hepatitis B or C and you've cleared it, don't worry, you still have to continue surveillance. Do not reduce surveillance. Which of the vaccines is contraindicated? Any internal medicine residents here? Ah, good, sorry, you're the only guy. <laughs> so which of these is contraindicated? So which are the live attenuated vaccines? So the two questions, which are the live attenuated vaccines? Two, are these contraindicated in cirrhosis? Good. Good. Any other live attenuated vaccines? Good. It's a good kid. Come on. <laughs> Tell me. So yellow fever, chicken pox measles, mumps, rubella, and the new rotavirus uh, is, is also. So you're saying none of these are contraindicated. Is that right? Very good.
0: Yes. good.
1: <laughs> they are not contraindicated. So go ahead with the immunization of your patients. So make sure they've got the pneumonia, influenza, and tetanus vaccines updated. Hepatitis A and B, depending on the population, you may or may not check serology, but they have to be updated again. You know that their antibody take is not going to be as good as if you did not have cirrhosis. And live attenuated vaccines are not contraindicated. The CDC came out with this recommendation about six years ago. But post-transplant, we don't use them. Then this pharmacotherapy you're going to deal with as a primary care physician. So here's a patient, 55 years old, BMI 35, serum cholesterol 382, Looks like the patient has cirrhosis, okay? But the patient needs treatment because the lipids are high. So let's have a show of hands. Avoid statins. Start statins and monitor AST and ALT every six weeks. Anyone? Few. Initiate statins and monitor AST and ALT two weeks, six weeks, three months, and six months. That is monitor a little longer, few more. I thought you were a good kid. (laughs) You put your hand up here, we'll come to that. (laughs) Initiate statins and watch for myalgia and muscle weakness. Good. And statins, so all you'll do a liver biopsy and you'll give them statins if liver biopsy does not show source, anyone? Okay, so this is what we know. So there are several studies done to not deprive patients of statins. Statins are great drugs, I love statins. Decrease your risk of malignancy, decrease your risk of Alzheimer's, all the other advantages. I've been on a statin now for 29 years. The number of times I've checked my liver tests is exactly zero, okay? You don't need to monitor them. So let's look at this study, which aims specifically at patients with cirrhosis. These were not uh, with chronic liver disease. Not all had biopsies, but about a fourth had cirrhosis. So pravastatin and placebo followed up for a year. So you can see the majority would have NAFLD as would be expected. Pravastatin arm, decreased total cholesterol as would be expected, placebo no decrease. Decrease in LDL as expected, no decrease in LDL, and AST and ALT changes, no different. So these are the current recommendations for statins. Asymptomatic uh, elevations are actually quite common. Don't worry about them. Liver failure is very rare. The risk of serious toxicity with statins is 1 in 6 million, and that's an autoimmune hepatitis. It causes an autoimmune hepatitis very responsive to steroids. Enzymes go very high. But that's very unusual. Low grade elevations, don't worry about them. Liver failure is very unlikely. No need for routine monitoring is the current recommendation. You can even use it in cirrhosis. They're not sure about B or C. So if a patient has been started on statins, let them continue. BOC is decompensated. Remember, they've got only limited short-term survival. That's when you're considering transplantation. So it's not clear whether using statins at that stage is really going to change cardiovascular risk. And current evidence supports use of statins to treat hyperlipidemia in NAFRO. So please use statins in these patients. So pharmacotherapy, acetaminophen, typically okay, not a problem in patients with cirrhosis but avoid non-steroidals because they worsen kidney disease. And especially if they have ascites, avoid aspirin and non-steroidals. Antibiotics, fluoroquinolone's good. Cephalosporin's good. Statin's good. I've not gone over metformin. Metformin, very good. Decreased risk of malignancy. Oral hypoglycemics are fine, but once they have decompensated disease, use insulin because of the prolonged action of oral hypoglycemics and clearance to the liver, they're at risk for hypoglycemia. The black box says lactic acidosis, that's less common, but those are the two risks with using oral hypoglycemics in patients with prolonged liver disease. So that's decompensated. Now we have the complications. So we have got decompensated cirrhosis here. So you have to treat the complications. Consider liver transplant. So those are the only two decisions that have to be made. So this is when the patient has to be referred to a specialist. So let's look at variceal bleeding. Variceal bleeding, we follow two recommendations. There's a European recommendation, European Association of Study of Liver meets at a place called Boveno, so those are called Boveno recommendations, American Association of Study of Liver Disease, practice guidelines. So those are the two guidelines that you have to follow. Now let's look at the easel guidelines. Boveno is on Lake Maggiore, which is the deepest lake in Italy. That is Switzerland. So one-third of the lake is in Switzerland. Two-thirds is in Italy. This is where the meeting is held at one of these two hotels. Look at the lawns. If you look out of your window, you see this, the Italian Alps, that's Lake Maggiore, that's Borromeo Island, where St. Charles Romeo came from. So if you look out of your window, you think this is heaven, okay? <laughs> now the ASLD, which is the American counterpart, also picks exotic places. Here's where the <laughs> ASLD meets. So here's where the ASLD meets to decide the future of Varisovly, okay? So. Between the two are the recommendations, and I'll go with just one
0: recommendation.
1: (laughs) Red cell transfusion is recommended when the hemoglobin drops below show seven, eight, nine, good. So this is based on on this study from Candid, which is restrictive versus liberal. Restrictive is when the hemoglobin drops below seven, Liberal is when the hemoglobin dropped below nine. And if you look here, restrictive strategy was better in terms of overall survival, but not for patients with bad liver disease. So it's only if your liver is not so bad, the restricted health. Little higher risk of cardiovascular problems in those who had cardiovascular disease. And so if you don't have cardiovascular problems, transfuse if it's below seven, if you don't have coronary artery disease or so, then you can pick nine. The next issue which comes up is when can you do procedures in these patients? That's a whole other talk, but we'll just go over things very quickly. Surgeons and Kerry will tell you, surgeons are worried about renal failure. They care less about the INR because with renal failure, the platelet dysfunction, and patients bleed a lot. Okay, so don't just look at the INR and platelet count. Worry about renal function in these patients. Sepsis, that's another big problem. Sepsis causes patients to bleed, even if your INR and platelets are looking okay. So in general, if you don't have advanced renal disease, a platelet count of over 30,000 is okay for elective banding. INR 2.5, there's no good correlation between INR and bleeding risk. If your creatine is greater than 2.5, that's when we expect a little higher platelet count. There's absolutely no proof that this is right, but these are generally recommendations that we make. So we finished variceal bleeding. The other complication, if you're a hospitalist, you're going to be dealing with is acute kidney injury in these patients. So when you get patients with a creatinine of greater than 1.5, the majority are going to be acute kidney injury. Some will have acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease, and some will have chronic di- kidney disease, especially the nephrotic population. When you have acute kidney injury, about 40% are going to be pre-renal. About 40% are going to be sepsis-related, acute tubular necrosis. And about 20 percent of hepatorenal syndrome so every elevation in creatinine is not hepatorenal syndrome hepatorenal syndrome is much less common than than pre-renal causes and A-T-N. and remember also if the creatinine is elevated the patient may have had underlying chronic kidney disease if you have long-standing elevations in creatinine and this is the navel population you know they're going to do better than those who have the acute increase in creatinine. Remember I talked about a median survival of about six weeks. So acute increase is more of a problem than chronic increases. So how should we treat these patients with an acute kidney injury? So the newer classification, you use the Aiken staging. So creatinine gone over just 0.3. You haven't doubled creatinine yet or if it's more than doubling of the creatinine. So divide them into stage one or greater than stage one. If you have stage one mild increases in creatinine, make sure, look for nephrotoxic drugs in these patients, see if they're on vasodilators, non-steroidals, withdraw diuretics, give them some volume. If they resolve, just follow them closely. But not all of them would resolve, some would persist, and then it depends on just how high the creatinine has gone. But if the creatinine has gone on such that they're in stage two, then you have to be much more aggressive. Consider albumin expansion for volume for two days, still no increase, I mean still no decrease, that's when you say this patient has acute kidney injury. Next question is, is this hepatorenal, prerenal, or ATN? We know it is not prerenal because we've expanded the volume, so then it's ATN or hepatorenal. ATN, if you look at the kidney, if you look at the urine, you're going to see changes, whereas the urine tends to be bland In hepatorenal syndrome, urine sodium you may or may not use depending on whether the patient has been on diuretics. So if they do not meet criteria of hepatorenal syndrome, treat them as acute tubular necrosis. But if they meet criteria of hepatorenal syndrome, that's vasoconstrictors and albumin. If you walk into an intensive care unit, you already see the discussion going on about dialysis. And I like to have that discussion again very early in these patients, because it all depends on what the prognosis is. So if it's ATN, whether they're a transplant candidate or not a transplant candidate, we will consider a limited trial of dialysis. If they're a transplant candidate, then we will continue on to transplant if required, and they may require a simultaneous liver and kidney transplant. If it's indeterminate, and this is really, I would say, maybe 30 or 40% of patients are not quite sure, is this hepatorenal or is this ATN? Give them a limited trial of dialysis. Give the patient the benefit of the doubt here. If you're sure this is hepatorenal syndrome and they're not a transplant candidate, the, dialysis is inappropriate, and they actually do worse with dialysis than that. So hepatrenal syndrome, you're clear about. You're not a transplant candidate. You're clear about that. Don't initiate the discussion on dialysis. And then finally, there's hepatic encephalopathy in here. If you have a hospital-aged patient with hepatic encephalopathy, first confirm that it's hepatic encephalopathy because there can be other causes of hepatic of altered mental status. Once you confirm it's hepatic encephalopathy, look for a precipitating event. If you have a precipitating event, they will do well. So you treat that. If there's no precipitating event found, then admit them to IC if they're greater than grade 3. Treat with lactulose and rifaximin. Don't forget the caregivers. Caregivers with hepatic encephalopathy also have a problem. Their psychological problems, depression, are very common in caregivers. So just remember, the caregiver also probably needs attention. When should you consider liver transplantation? Here you can see in blue, survival, and the wait list for liver transplant. In yellow, Transplant survival. And so the real difference is below 15, you don't have a survival benefit. 15 to 17 is a wash. You start seeing it from above 17. Or looking another way, are you going to live longer with a transplant or not? And again, this is a discussion because patients with cirrhosis hear about transplant, but you have to talk to them about transplant benefit. So here you can see this is from the SRTR. Here are the intervals of the MELD score. Life with transplant, life without transplant. The difference between the two is survival benefit. And that's when you start. The clear survival benefit is at 20. Over 17, you start getting it, but clearly over 20, and the higher your score, the greater the survival benefit. So when should you consider liver transplant? It improves quality of life. You do transplant to improve quality of life or to improve quantity of life. You don't have a survival benefit. You may have a quality of life benefit, but no survival benefit with malice less than 15. You have a clear benefit. your have definite benefit, quality and quantity of life over 20, 15 to 20, probably some benefit. Okay, so these are the take-home messages for the primary care physician. You do not require liver biopsy to diagnose cirrhosis. First question, is a patient compensated or decompensated? Assetus encephalopathy jaundice is decompensated. If it's compensated, reverse cause, make them lose weight, immunizations, build some muscle. If it's decompensated, refer to a specialist who has to treat the complications and consider liver transplantation. Thank you.
0: Dr. Kamath, we'll take questions, we have a few minutes. Um, I wanted to maybe mention a question. Um, You know, we talked about the uh, survival of patients with compensated cirrhosis being nine to 12 years, um, and that's based on not treating the underlying problem. Um, How much do you think the etiology and the chances that we treat that underlying problem change
1: that up. So so the question is, is the 9 to 12 years with or without treatment? So this is based on a Spanish study of 1987, predominantly viral disease and predominantly alcohol-related liver disease. So the viral disease was not adequately treated because there's no treatment, but alcohol abstention increased that. We don't know whether these numbers hold good for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that's actually Alina Allen, one of my colleagues, we're studying that in the community. I believe these numbers are probably incorrect and cannot be applied to everyone. But compensated disease, the focus would be to to reverse the cause in these patients. Also our models for predicting survival, I don't think are very good, even though I'm involved in all this, in, I don't think the medical score in the future will be as accurate as it is now, because when it was developed, we excluded patients with comorbidity, excluded sepsis, we excluded intrinsic renal disease, but now everything is included. So you have a patient with diet coronary artery disease and patients use the medical score to predict survival. It's not going to be accurate, because it's going to die have cardiovascular disease before that. So, this score is for liver related deaths, good for patients who've got liver disease alone and very little comorbidity. In terms of uh, SPP prophylaxis, I or compensate in It's often very difficult uh, to take folks, uh, uh, have folks take lactulose on a consistent basis, or difficult insurance, the behavioral capacity. Is there any evidence? Uh, of other agencies, specifically, uh, so, so the question here is related to SPP prophylaxis and hepatic encephalopathy treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. So th- there are studies predominantly funded by the company which makes rifaximin, which shows that rifaximin, patients on rifaximin have a lower risk of SPP. Okay, uh, if rifaximin is very expensive, the question is neomycin. The original dose recommended was three grams four times a day, so that's a lot of pills many times a day. We don't have data on neomycin and prevention of SPP. So the data on prevention of SPP are with norfloxacin, ciprofloxacin smaller, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole smaller, augmented. So we have other drugs that can be used. So the question is, whom will we use SPP prophylaxis in? So classically, it's one episode of SPP, then you have prophylaxis. So that's called secondary prophylaxis. Primary is for those who've never had SPP. Short term is for variceal bleed. Long term is not quite clear. So the recommendation has been based on, uh, on sort of anecdotal data that if your protein is less than 1.5, there's low protein ascites, especially if it's less than one, treat. We have a paper actually just this month It's from maybe four sites in the country where we pulled all the patients and looked at risk. We believe the severity of liver disease determines whether you're going to get SPP, not the protein. So even when you factor in protein, It's the severity of liver disease which is more important. So essentially we're saying if your marrow score is greater than 18, you should be on SPP prophylaxis. If the patient cannot afford uh, rifaximin, which is often the case, and they cannot manage with lactulose, what can you use? Metronidazole has been tried. You know, it's associated with peripheral neuropathy. We're trying to use a very small dose of metronidazole. That's also possible because neomycin is very difficult to take. one
0: more. Yeah? I I, I noticed you didn't talk about self-review, you about what's compensated and what's not. Is that because you don't like it? It's not accessible enough?
1: So so the question is, why did I not talk about child-pew scovia? So we have classification. One is the broadest is compensated versus decompensated. So that's essentially child A would be compensated, B and C would be decompensated. The next classification would be child A, B, C. And the third is the MEL score. So these are different degrees of what we call um, stratification. So it's coarse stratification between compensated, decompensated, little finer. Now you have three categories and your score goes between 6 and 15, so 9 <laughs> levels. And then you have a MEL score, which is essentially 0 to infinity, even though we use 6 to 40. So for transplantation, it's good to have a really widespread, because you don't want to clump patients together. And that was the problem with the Child Pew score. So the Child Pew 7, you did not require a transplant. Over 10 was one status. So most were in the category, all lumped together, so waiting time was important. So the finer the stratification, the more you can spread patients out and pick. So that's the difference. But in practice, for instance, if you're doing constraint surgery, I think child-pure is good. If you use uh, child A, you say, sure, patient can go ahead with surgery. C, no surgery. B, perhaps depends on how important it is. It's just a question of stratification. And uh, uh, I don't want to have a bone to pick with you. When patients say Child Pew, I say, please do not say Child Pew. It's Child Turcot Pew. And and I'm, Jeremiah Turcot was the one who devised, uh, you know, he put this code together. Child was his chief. Child did not do the work. But Child, <laughs> ep, child was a surgeon who was. Uh, it, this is written in hepatology. Child was a surgeon. They said nobody could even walk close to him. So he was Jeremiah Turcott's chief, but he, it was called the child score. So it was not called the child Turcotte score. Then Pew worked with Roger Williams. That's the only paper he ever had. He went into practice. And he said, nutrition is a bit of a problem, so let's use prothrombin time. So then it became the child Pew score. But the guy who did the most work, who did fantastic, He's, he's chief of surgery at Michigan, one of the nicest people you can meet. So humble, you would not believe he's a surgeon, but he did the work, so please, no, I'm serious. He's an extremely nice man. And so I say, please do not say child Pew. It is child Turcotte Pew. And if you want to pick one name, call it the Turcotte School. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm Mara Fatora, I'm leading the